Please pray with me. Almighty God, we ask you in Jesus' name to let your anointing be upon the preaching of your word, the declaration of the truth of Holy Scripture. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit now would rest upon me. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the last few weeks, I have had conversations with people who have brought up the topic of Christian nationalism. I hear it everywhere. Some of those have been fellow believers, and some of them have been unbelievers. But whenever someone brings up this term, it's always as a term of derision. And so I ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say uh, Christian nationalism, what do you mean by that? And I've not received one consistent answer. In fact, I haven't uh, really received a coherent answer. In other words, the phrase seems to have an emotional or visceral content, but not much of a definition. Uh, One Christian basically responded that by it he meant any Christian who was to his political right. Uh, Another person indicated that there was a great deal of fear associated with this term, and basically it meant for them that Christians want to use Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale as a model for ordering society. Uh, There may actually be people like that, but I've never met a single one of them. Actually, if you really want to know, I think Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale is more a critique of Islam than what she intended to do, which was to critique Christianity. Other people I've spoken with indicated that they see it as a form of white identitarian racism that appropriates Christian symbols, and I think there is certainly that out in the in the mix in society, but I don't think that there's any evidence that that is a growing movement. I think it's just about what it's always been. Others seem to consider Christians who just want to bring their convictions, Christians who just want to bring their convictions into the public square or into the political process are Christian nationalists, particularly as it relates to issues regarding human identity or sexuality or the sanctity of life. So with all of that confusion out there, I went online to CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine, and I went to NPR, and yes, I even went to the Rolling Stone to find a consistent definition. And they all talked about it. They all said that Christian nationalism is really scary and it's really bad, but there's no common definition. In fact, it's been like trying to nail jello to the wall to figure out an answer. But since everybody is talking about this right now, I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to gain some biblical clarity. Now, I'm going to pull on a few threads here and try to offer, first of all, a factual and then a biblical response to this topic. In one sense, I hope this is going to be a boring sermon. and In other words, I mean that uh, we'll all walk away saying that this was just standard biblical fare. I don't know what all the big deal is about. And I'm actually going to kind of appeal to St. Augustine of Hippo in his City of God, where he, addressing the criticisms of Christianity at the end of the Roman Empire as Rome began to crumble and as the uh, city of Rome itself had been sacked, and many people were saying that the demise of Rome was because of Christianity in that day and time, he writes the City of God, and in it he addresses um, the pagan philosophers and the pagan gods, sort of the, the history of his day, and then brings a bib- biblical response to that. And that's kind of what I want to do. We're going to have to get into a little bit of history, and then we'll have a biblical response to that. So to begin with, let's just start with that history before we turn to the Bible. Here are some important clarifications. 
One of the recurring themes I've encountered in all the Sturm und Drang about Christian nationalism is that Christian nationalists believe that America was founded as a Christian nation. So one of the components I've read uh, of Christian nationalism is that Christians believe that America was founded as a Christian nation. Well, let's just talk about the facts. I don't know that you could say that America was founded as a Christian nation, but you definitely could say that America was self-consciously Christian at its founding. The United States was founded within the context of a broad and deep Christian consensus. It would be anachronistic and historically false to claim that the War of Independence and the founding of the United States were secular enterprises. There was indeed an attempt at a secular, non-religious revolution in the 18th century, and that was in France, and it produced the reign of terror and the guillotine. In contrast, the United States was founded as a non-sectarian, non-sectarian constitutional republic with a broad range for freedom of conscience. Fifty of the 55 men who comprised the Constitutional Convention were Orthodox Christian believers. And one author reminds us that the Christianity of our nation was primarily a function of a robust Christian consensus. The Treaty of Paris concluded the hostilities between England and and America in our war for independence. That treaty's opening words were in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Our Christian consensus continued and even strengthened into the 19th century. While the First Amendment to the federal constitution forbids Congress establishing a state religion, you may not realize that various states were not, the various states were not forbidden to do such. In fact, Massachusetts did not abandon its tax-funded state support for congregationalism until 1833. It was an established church in the state of Massachusetts until 1833. And did you know that until 1875, North Carolina had an official state religion, although it was not funded by the state? Guess what that religion was? That's right, it was Anglicanism. So welcome back, North Carolina. In fact, to this day, the North Carolina state constitution begins with these words. We, the people of the state of North Carolina, grateful to Almighty God, the sovereign ruler of nations, for the preservation of the American Union and the existence of our civil, political, and religious liberties, and acknowledging our dependence upon him for the continuance of these blessings to us and our posterity, do for the more certain security thereof and for the better government of this state, ordain and establish this constitution." And in the 1892 case, Church of the Holy Trinity versus United States, Supreme Court, David, Supreme Court Justice David Brewer wrote for a unanimous court that no purpose of action against religion shall be, can be imputed to any legislation, state or national, because this is a religious people. This is a Christian nation. Close quote. Starry decisis, baby. <laughs> It wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that the broad Christian consensus in the United States began to fracture to be replaced with calls for greater secularism. However, considering the breadth of American history and the trends since the dissolution of our Christian foundation, 
I don't think that the Christian consensus was a bad thing at all for the United States. In fact, I would argue that it, in fact, was quite a good thing for us. But I don't see that coming back in our lifetimes. We are well and truly in a post-Christian era in America, and we need to recognize that genuine conviction... This is important. We need to recognize that genuine convictional Christians... What do I mean by that? Well, I mean a Christianity that would actually inconvenience you. In other words, your convictions about the Christian faith are so strong that you are willing to be inconvenienced within the broader society because of your Christian commitment. So that, therefore, I would argue that genuine Christian convictional Christians of any denomination, and this is not just my argument, it's actually what research indicates, Genuine Christian, uh, con- convictional Christians of any denomination total somewhere around 20%, just 20% of the population. So for my non-Christian friends who are worked up into a lather that we are on the verge of a theocracy, I really don't think you have very much to worry about. In fact, I would maintain that from my reading, the claim that the Christian faith was not central to the founding of the United States is a tendentious secular claim unsupported by the facts for the purpose of seeking to expunge the influence of Christianity from the public square. But I could be wrong about that. No, we're not, we're not a Christian nation now. We're not a Christian nation now. We're an apostate post-Christian nation under the Roman, Romans chapter 1 judgment of God. And God gave them up. Now, what cannot be maintained, so if you really want to know what, where I think you might start to encounter some Christian nationalism that would seep into typical mainline or even evangelical churches, or perhaps evangelical churches more so, what cannot be maintained from Scripture is that America has a special place in God's plan for human history. America, the claim that America has a special place in God's plan for human history. Based on Holy Scripture, we are no more exceptional than Portugal or Uruguay or Rwanda. God has a place. God does have a place for all the nations in his plan. And that place for them is revealed in Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 through 26. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light... Will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. The nations have a purpose, and it is to bring their glory and honor into the city of God for the glory of God. Now, just one quick point about nationalism per se or patriotism. First of all, nations are not a bad thing. I've actually kind of heard that in some recent conversations, that the whole enterprise of nationalism or nation states are bad. Well, while a nation in antiquity is not identical to how we think of modern, the modern nation state that emerged in Europe in the 17th century, there is continuity. God establishes the nations. Paul on Mars Hill preaches in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, And he made from one man, every nation, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So love of nation 
as an extension of love of home or love of family is no wicked thing. A proper patriotism that does not degrade the other nations of the earth, but relishes and rejoices in the gifts God has given one's own homeland is a laudable thing. C.S. Lewis wrote, As the family offers us the first step beyond self-love, so proper patriotism offers us the first step beyond family selfishness. Of course, patriotism of this kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be let alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. In any mind which has a pennyworth of imagination, it produces a good attitude towards foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men no less rightly love theirs? So if we believe that the gospel is the best news in the world, we naturally want to share it with those we love. And that includes our fellow countrymen. And if we believe that the principles of Scripture are given by God for human flourishing, to not want to influence society with those good things would be the opposite of actually demonstrating love of neighbor. So it's good for us to want to bring Christian conviction and Christian influence into the society around us. Well, that's enough of that. But how about some Bible facts about our position in the nation as we await our Lord's second coming? Well, baby William here at Christchurch is about to take his oath of citizenship through his baptism. Listen for all that kingdom language in his baptismal service. Our citizenship, William's citizenship, is ultimately in heaven. Philippians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, we are strangers and aliens. We don't belong here. We ultimately belong to a different polis, a different nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's speaking to the church. A people for his own possession. I think in the King James it calls us a peculiar People, and I think some of us are leaning into that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And now listen to this, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as, here's the phrase, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, aliens and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are strangers and aliens. So we do have a Christian nation that will stand long after the American empire is lost to the sands of time. Indeed, it's more than a nation. It is the eternal kingdom of God. Listen to our reading again from Revelation 1 this week. Revelation 1 beginning at verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, here it is, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And in that kingdom, 
Jesus says he will make his faithful church rulers of the nations. Listen to this. I think we just kind of gloss over some of these scriptures as we're reading them, perhaps devotionally, uh, that they don't really register with us and the claims that they make. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. In the letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus says, the one, this is Jesus to his church, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And until that time, until that time, the church of Jesus Christ will look far more like the cross than like a triumphant nation. And we heard that today in Luke chapter 21, Luke 21 verses 12, and then jumping down to verse 16 and following. Before all this, this is what we look like in the meantime. This is what our, this is, this is not a claim for uh, triumphalism. It's not Christian triumphalism. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what's in store for us on the earth. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now listen to what Jesus says. You will be hated. By all, for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Our life as the church militant in this age is one that looks far more like the cross than like a conquering nation. Ultimately, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is not interested in the kind of national, Christian nationalism We're not interested in the kind of Christian nationalism that the secularists and God-haters, Romans 1.30, fear. Because Christian nationalism, frankly, is just not enough for us. In one sense, their worst fears are true. There is going to be a theocracy. Jesus is returning in glory. He will judge the rebellious nations, and he will rule the new heavens and the new earth. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is returning to reign. Jesus is the present ruler of kings on earth. A while back, uh, during one of our foundations courses, the last iteration of the foundations course at Christ Church, we had a young man attend. He's, uh, he's my son in the Lord now. His name is Erdem, and Erdem had grown up in, in a Muslim country, and he himself, went, he, even as he attended that foundations uh, session that evening, was, was a Muslim. And Erdem was so excited about all the things we were talking about in foundations. He came up after me with a lot of uh, came up after the meeting with a lot of energy to tell me that uh, uh, how much Islam was like Christianity. All the things we were saying in the foundations course is just like Islam. It's just like Islam. Christianity is just like Islam is what he was saying. And I said to him, I said, "Well, actually, it's not Erdem because here's the distinction." Jesus Christ is the ruler of Mecca and Medina today. Jesus Christ is Lord of Mecca and Medina today. And he will return, he will return in glory. 
and his enemies will be made his footstool, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord in Mecca and Medina and throughout all the earth. I think perhaps one of the best depictions of what it means to be a Christian, anticipating the coming kingdom, living under the reign of Jesus Christ in this present age, actually comes to us from the second century letter to Diognetus. It's from an unknown writer, an unknown author, but we still have this letter, or at least a portion of it. And let me read that to you, and it seems to be a fitting place for us to kind of bring this sermon to a conclusion. I think it really expresses what it means to be a Christian in the between times, and I think it would even serve as a great charter for William's life as he begins his life as a disciple of Jesus Christ at his baptism this morning. For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, whether, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the law in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks, yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of the world. The soul is in the body, but is not of the body. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. What a beautiful summation of what it means to be strangers and aliens because indeed brothers and sisters our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior jesus christ in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen